Vaccines, Eschatology, and Urban versus Rural Poverty. This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, episode 18. So it's been a while. Uh, life is full. I've also had some technological complications with the process. And I, I want to do the, the, the podcast when I'm able to focus and I'm excited about it. I would rather release an episode every couple months that I have fun doing, which I think will be more fun for you to listen to than to just uh, churn them out. So anywho, I am excited to talk about a few things. One note before we jump into stuff. Um, even over the past couple of months where I haven't been doing podcasts regularly or at all, I have received a couple of questions from you guys and I'd love keep sending them in. Certainly when there are uh, interesting, engaging questions on which I have something interesting to say, that uh, certainly helps with the podcasting. So if, if you have any topic ideas or specific questions, please shoot me a text at 315-566-0056. Uh, again, that's 315-566-0056. That's a number that those texts end up straight in my email labeled for the podcast. And we'll uh, cover some of that stuff at some point. Anywho, so the first topic today, vaccines. I've had several interesting conversations and I've received several questions about vaccines. Um, you know, particularly in light of the COVID-19 vaccine, but then vaccines generally. And, and first thought is this. Um, one of the things we recognize in scripture is the principle of common grace. Jesus said that the sun rises on the just and the unjust, and the Lord sends rain to the just and the unjust. And, and part of common grace is uh, we being evil give good gifts to our children. We have minds to think with. People, you, you don't have to be a, a healthy follower of Jesus to be able to drive a car well or learn about mosquitoes or, you know, there's all sorts of things that people who are not following Jesus by the grace of God are able to live uh, productive and, and in, in many ways at times, very healthy lives that contribute to the people around them. And that's part of God's grace that there's we have crops and people can farm without loving Jesus and people can invent light bulbs without loving Jesus. I, I wish they all were loving Jesus, but common grace is the reality that the grace of God, the goodness of God enables men and women who are even apart from salvific grace, who are unsaved, unregenerate, they still have grace to uh, use some of their God-given talents for good. Of course, they also can use them for evil. A great evil at times, but but the point is they can be used for good. Hey, so I don't do edits too often, but I was skimming back through this, and I don't know if I tied up this idea well. The reality is certainly apart from Christ, we are hopelessly lost. Sin has it invades everything and perverts everything. Uh, but the 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 goodness of God, if if God just gave us completely over to our sin like 100% and withdrew his grace, we would implode. I mean, saying in a day might be dramatic, but it, it would be utter mayhem and destruction and poof. Like it is the mercy of God that he gives us grace. And and part of his grace is uh, 
to cook great food and build stable cars and design vaccines. And whether the, the vaccine is designed by somebody who's born again and following Jesus or designed by somebody who's not, uh, it's, it's thank the Lord for modern medicine and many of the discoveries that have happened. And it is by the grace of God. It is common grace. Back to the original take. And vaccines can be amazing. Um, I, I'm sure I've referenced this before in the podcast some point last year, but uh, there are diseases such as smallpox, and I shouldn't say diseases. I'm not sure there are any others. Polio is close, but smallpox has been effectively eradicated from humanity. And if that doesn't like awe you and excite you, you might not appreciate that smallpox throughout the millennia has killed hundreds of millions of human beings. And it would come into a village. I live in the village of Canton. And if smallpox came to an area like Canton, where there's, I don't know, nine or 10,000 people, you could expect something like 3,000 people to die. To die. And something like 80-some percent of the population have some sort of effect for the rest of their lives from smallpox. 3,000 people dying. You know, in, in Canton, if 50 people died from a disease next week, that would be genuinely alarming. But 3,000? Like, it was devastating. And the vaccine itself actually had a 3% mortality rate, which, you know, by comparison, that's way more deadly than COVID-19. The vaccine. But the vaccine at 3% was way better than the 30% mortality rate of smallpox itself. And through the vaccine... Uh, I, th I think it was in the 1970s that smallpox was declared eradicated from the human race. Pretty awesome. Anywho, vaccines can be amazing. It's also true that there are tons of vaccines today. Y you can get scores of vaccines. And I am aware that medical interventions often have side effects many, maybe even major, but unforeseen consequences. And so I, I am vaccine accepting, but I am also vaccine cautious. Uh, I tend to look at the, the schedule of recommended vaccines in New York state, for example, and think I don't need all of these and likely don't need them as aggressively as is recommended. I mean, New York State now is recommending infants get a number of vaccines. Just like give them some space, give them some time. Uh, so I, I am vaccine accepting and also vaccine cautious. A thought regarding COVID nineteen vaccines specifically. the The technology for the COVID nineteen vaccine is new. It is novel. It's it's an mRNA based vaccine. So rather than uh, just a weakened version or uh, somehow mutilated version of the virus, SARS coronavirus 2, it is, they, they mapped the genome and then they synthesized the RNA for the, the proteins that are on the edge of the SARS coronavirus 2 virus. They inject the RNA into your body with this vaccine your body then responds, your immune system responds. Uh, anytime you get a, a vaccine, your, 
your immune system will actually be temporarily even weakened as it's it's basically fighting this foreign entity, but it's responding to this mRNA that has the the encoding for the protein, uh, like pr proteins that like protrude from a SARS coronavirus two virus. And so your immune system learns to recognize those proteins without ever having to be exposed to some version of the virus itself. And furthermore, it's something that as technology in the past couple of decades has rapidly increased in our ability to map uh, genetic sequences and then synthesize genetic material, we're able to spin up. I mean, I heard... I'm not going to say this is true definitively, but I read multiple places in multiple places that the vaccine for COVID-19 was pretty much wrapped up within a couple of weeks of like the major outbreak in January, 2020. And it really was just several months of testing and FDA approval before it was being rolled out. At When did the virus, the vaccine get out? Maybe in December? So like within a year, but really as we become better with the practice, you could potentially have a new virus come along and in a matter of weeks, create the vaccines and start churning vaccine and start churning it out. It's really pretty exciting and amazing. Uh, I've also read that this same technology, people are using it to try to develop treatments for malaria and maybe even use mRNA vaccine type solutions to fight cancer, things like that really pretty cool. Again, medical interventions often have side effects, maybe even some major unforeseen consequences. So I am uh, certainly vaccine accepting here, but also cautious. Um, I think if you are at a high risk, like, you know, think COVID-19, you're like, there's a several percent chance that I could die getting COVID-19, then it probably makes a lot of sense to get the vaccine. If you're around people like that all, all the time, eh, maybe. Uh, if you're healthy and rarely interacting with people that have a lot of comorbidities or elderly, I'm not sure it makes tons of sense. That's It's something to kind of weigh. It's, it's relative risks. There's not a clear answer. Um, I would say this. One thing that people have grappled with a bit is... Often in vaccine development, and this was the case for the testing of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and I believe the development of Johnson & Johnson and Merck vaccines, that they used cells that were uh, cloned from some aborted fetuses, aborted babies back in the 1970s, maybe. There's kind of like this this line of cells that's it's really famous within the medical research field. Uh, and that was used and you might have some ethical questions. I think we should, I'm not going to get into that right now. I would recommend if you're interested in learning more about that, check out the Albert Moeller, the briefing podcast from yesterday, Wednesday, that would be Wednesday, March 3rd. He did a great job talking about some of the ethical questions related to that. So I would direct you that way. One of the things that's come up though, when I've been talking to people about the vaccine, a question that's been asked a couple of times ends up relating to the mark of the beast. So in the book of Revelation, we we read about the, the, the beast and people following the beast, and we see a, a mark of the beast. And it's a mark that in, in Revelation, well, let's just read it. It's, where is this? Revelation 13. 
So speaking of the beast, it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. That would be the mark is the beast's name or the number of its name. And then the following verse says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So what is the mark of the beast? My short answer is I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen studies regarding the number of 666 and even uh, recognizing that sometimes the way uh, people communicated and looked into things was attributing numerical values to different letters in the alphabet. And there's actually a way to do this and, and read 666 as referring to Nero's name, Nero being an emperor in Rome, I don't know, in like the, the 50s and 60s, sometime in that range. So kind of during the establishment of the early church, it would have been under Nero that most likely that's when the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were executed. So yeah, we, I don't know exactly what the mark of the beast is. And it, you know, it's really not clear to us, maybe to believers at some specific point in time, either historical or maybe at a point in time in the future, it'll become a lot clearer. As a result of this passage, there are Christians who... Um, let's see, are not simply aware of this and walking in sober-minded wisdom, but are almost uh, a little bit hyper-paranoid because of this. You see, in the next chapter in the book of Revelation, uh, we read this, uh, Revelation 14, verse 9, and another, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. And so there's this, this uh, statement, this reality that those who follow the beast, worship the beast in its image, or anybody who receives the mark of its name, these are a damned people. Um, there is, this is not the way of the people of God. And, and that should bring a sober-minded wisdom to us today. But, but as a result of this uh, really strong statement, I have encountered people, and probably most of us know people, who almost walk in a trepidation of, oh, what, what, what if I somehow accidentally get the mark of the beast? Is the mark of the beast a credit card? Is the mark of the beast a smartphone? Is the mark of the beast a vaccine with some sort of, you know, uh, oh, what are they called? like nanobots type thing, or is the mark of the beast this, is it that? And, and and the truth is, if we walk around in some sort of paranoia about what the mark of the beast is, A, God has not given us a spirit of fear. This is not from the Lord. This anxiety, this fear, this worry, it's not godly. Let me just say that confidently. Uh, the, the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. 
I'm not saying let's not be wise and sober-minded. I'm saying let's not be fearful and paranoid. Secondly, I, I don't think the Lord's petty. Although certainly many will be deceived by the beast, believers who are submitted to Jesus are... I, I don't think we're going to accidentally forfeit our salvation without even knowing it because we genuinely believed in Jesus, humbled ourselves, repented of our sins, experienced the miracle of the new birth. Second Corinthians chapter five, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For this person, a child of God who's been adopted into the family, for somebody who's walking with the Lord, walking in fellowship, submitted to scripture, if this person then gets a credit card and that happens to be the mark of the beast, now they're damned. No, the Lord will get our attention. You know, one of the things that was super freeing to me years ago is I had a an incorrect vision of the Lord, that, that God was far off and he had a plan for my life, but he was keeping it secret. And somehow I had to like beg it out of him or, or figure it out. And, and I realized I just had a, a moment with the Lord as I was walking with God. This is back in, you know, college. So 10 year, 10 plus years ago. And walking with the Lord and realizing, man, God is good. God is more interested in me walking in health and his will for my life than I am. Like there are moments where I very strongly am like eagerly pursuing that. There are moments where I'm not as healthy and not as eagerly pursuing that, but every moment God is a good father who wants the best for me. And he wants me walking to his will. And yet if, if I'm walking in pride and arrogance, I should fear that I'm going to miss what God has for me. But when I'm walking in humility, man, God gives grace to the proud. If, if there's something really significant that God has for you and you're walking in humility, he will get your attention. He will put an angel in front of your donkey. He will knock you to the ground with a bright light. He will bring profits along the way, bring dreams. Like God can get your attention. And so the, the key to not walking in the way of the beast is not to be hyper paranoid and every new thing that comes along, be afraid that it might be the mark of the beast. The, the key is to chase hard after Jesus, to walk in humility, to walk in a sober-minded wisdom that is open to, Lord, let, if this is the mark of the beast, make it clear to me, Jesus. But it is... It is patently misunderstanding the goodness of God, the nearness of God, the, the power of God to move on our behalf, to think that a, a person who is genuinely and humbly walking with the Lord will accidentally remove themselves from the grace of God because they got a vaccine and they didn't realize it was the mark of the beast. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And so I do not want to say, who cares about the mark of the beast? Because clearly this is given to us here in Revelation chapters 13 and 14 so that we can walk with sober-minded wisdom. But I also want to speak a word of freedom and peace to believers who might be walking in any sort of paranoia. The Lord is good. God is good. God is kind. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will give you grace. He will show himself strong on your behalf. We don't have to be fearful. Amen? Okay, so 
In, in light of discussing the mark of the beast, what I was going to do was take a few moments and just talk about eschatology generally. I know in the past year, more than once, I've had people ask me, do you think this is the end? Is, is this kind of, uh, is Jesus going to come back because of just the the tumult, the unrest around the globe, the the pandemic, the responses? Um, in short, it might be, but I have no reason to specifically think this is the end any more than a lot of other times throughout history. Uh, I wanted to elaborate, but actually for the sake of time, we're approaching the 20 minute mark already. And I'm really interested in getting to this last idea. It is not related to anything people have asked me recently, but it is something that I've been chewing on for oh, nine months now. And, and just recently I had a great conversation with Carson Smith, a friend of mine, my brother-in-law. And uh, I had some ideas that we were working on and I think they're going to be interesting and helpful and just something to introduce to the conversation about poverty, about uh, race relations in America today, racism, things like this. So I, I'm putting this under the heading of urban versus rural poverty. But the thing that brought it to mind today is there was a, a fellow named Charles Blow who wrote a book. Uh, it's like a, a Black Power Manifesto. I can't remember the title. What was it? Um, Charles Blow. Got to Google it real quick. It's called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And I have not read the book, but I've listened to an interview and uh, read some articles. And in a nutshell, I'm sure there's a lot of complexity to it. I don't want to straw man his case, but it's essentially what he's arguing for is uh, he's... he's uh, seeing just prevalent racism all over the United States. He doesn't see a good solution. So rather than trying to end racism, he has another solution in mind. And his solution is to reverse the great migration a hundred years ago when huge numbers of black Americans, I'm talking like 15, 20, 25, 30% of black American communities in the South migrated to the North, the Northeast. So cities like Chicago, New York, and many others. And so there was the great migration and he's proposing a reversal of that where black Americans from around the U S migrate back to States like Louisiana. Um, and it's an interesting, uh, interesting idea. Um, to start with, certainly we see that there is racism today in America. There are problems of uh, crime and poverty and family brokenness and just all sorts of stuff that really isn't specific to any race. I want to make that more general at the outset. And as believers, certainly we want to bring to people the good news that there's forgiveness and there's life and hope in Jesus. But in the book of James, James says, you know, if somebody comes to you and they're, they're, they're cold and they're hungry and you say, be warm and fed, but you don't give them clothes and give them food to eat, man, faith without works is dead. Are, are you really following Jesus? There's something like, there's something about our faith in Jesus that, that moves us to preach the gospel to people because we love them, but we also, we love them. So just as you would your child, we, we want to serve and see them thriving and, and, and healthy. And so, so 
there ought to be something when we look at the world around us and we see brokenness and we see people who aren't fulfilling their potential and we see people with obstacles in their way, there should be something in us that does rise up and says, I love my neighbor. I love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. How can I use the opportunities and the resources I have to help those around me and to serve those around me? And so people like Charles Blow are observing real problems. I'm not sure I would agree with his characterization of all the problems the way he does, but I do agree there are real problems in America today. And one of them is a poverty problem. We have a poverty problem. One of them also, though, is something that Charles Blow would perpetuate with his solution to some of the problems he sees, and that is racial essentialism. And and racial essentialism, it's a term I use a good bit, but I was like, how would you define this exactly? So I just Googled it, and I found an article from... Uh, in the Association of Psychological Sciences. And uh, the article defined it this way, and I think it works well. Racial essentialism is the view that racial groups possess underlying essences that represent deep-rooted, unalterable traits and abilities. It's like the fact that someone is Hispanic or Asian or Black or white or, or whatever isn't simply going to say something, some things about their physiology and maybe even be you know statistically correlated to they probably come from certain cultures you know somebody who's uh asian well good chances that you know their their ethnicity is they're they're either indian their heritage is either indian or chinese right like it's just those are basic probabilistic correlations but to say that like something about them, they're going to be a, a better person or a more valuable person or a more hardworking person or whatever, that's not tied to their race. Those are, those are like personal character qualities. Those are cultural character things. They're, they're not, it's, you know, regardless. So take a family who's adopted a number of children from various ethnic or racially presenting. I don't even love the way we use the word race today, but whatever, that's a different conversation. It's a conversation we had in like episode six last summer. But uh, if they all grow up in the same family, they're going to be shaped by that family a lot more than they're shaped by the color of their skin. Racial essentialism though says like your race is this really significant, deep essence about you connected to unalterable traits and abilities. I'm like, uh, I think that's problematic. In some ways, that is, I would say, racist to say because someone is white or black, therefore thus and such about them. And it's I'm like, well, because they're white, they're white. But otherwise, who knows? Because they're black, they're black. But otherwise, who knows? Um, and so I see problems of urban poverty in our world today. I'm not sure making them connected to race directly and then having part of the solution be some sort of racial segregation of black Americans all moving back to a few states and to dominate those states. I'm like, it might help some things, but in other ways, it's just going to perpetuate racism in America. I, I don't see this as a great solution. And it reminded me of a comment Clarence Thomas made in his memoir, which was written I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, but I heard it in a documentary that was released about a year ago. 
And in the, the, the film, he's talking and he's describing when he moved from a uh, rural area to Savannah in Georgia. And here, here's a line um, from his memoir, and I'll read it. When I was a boy, Savannah was hell. Overnight, I moved from comparative safety and cleanliness of rural poverty to the foulest kind of urban squalor. The only running water in our building was downstairs in the kitchen, where several layers of old linoleum were all that separated us from the ground. The toilet was outdoors in the muddy black backyard. My mother and brother shared the only bed, leaving me to sleep on a chair. It was too small, even for a six-year-old. We couldn't afford to light the kerosene stove very often, so I was cold most of the time. Cold and hungry. Though there was only one store in my previous home of Pinpoint, the rivers and the land provided us with a lavish and steady supply of fresh food. Fish, pig's feet, and plenty of fresh vegetables. Never before had I known the nagging, chronic hunger that plagued me in Savannah. Hunger without the prospect of eating and cold without the prospect of warmth. That's how I remember the winter of 1955. I highly recommend, this is me speaking again, I highly recommend watching this documentary. It's called, what was it called? Created Equal, uh, Clarence Thomas in his own words, and it was uh, published or, or released about a year ago, and PBS.org ran it free of charge for like a couple of weeks. I watched it on PBS, and uh, Carson did also, and we ended up in some conversations. It's now available all over the place. Uh, go to justicethomasmovie.com for various links to streaming sites. I know that you can rent it and watch it on YouTube for like three or four bucks. It was on Amazon and they pulled it last month, which is another conversation, but that is just, Clarence Thomas is a sitting Supreme Court justice. He's not a perfect man, but his life story is inspiring. There's much for all of us to learn from him. And the fact that Amazon pulled that documentary I I haven't even heard if Amazon's made any sort of statement as to why, but it's deeply troubling. But that is another conversation. So Clarence Thomas talks about the difference between rural poverty. He, he was impoverished as a child, but he lived in a rural context for the first five years of his life. And he says in the documentary, he wasn't really even aware of the fact he was impoverished. Yeah, he wore the same clothes every day. Yeah, they didn't have much. But he was free. He roamed. He ate. He, he, he said rural poverty was relatively good to him. And then they moved to Savannah. Maybe moved to Savannah for more opportunities, whatever. But urban poverty was, well, in his description, it was hell. And he was hungry, he was cold, it was foul, sewage out back, that was urban poverty. And, and the reality is in America today, there are many people in poverty. I would love to see people moved out of poverty eventually. And, and we have, by the way, plenty of Americans have been raised out of poverty over the decades, but there are still millions of Americans living in poverty. And many of them are in an urban context. And that's what's uh, particularly caught my attention when he made that statement and uh, the same with Carson, my brother-in-law. And, and so we started discussing and how could you potentially, I mean, the, the, the 
asp- the idea of trying to take millions of people from poverty and out of poverty, you just can't do that overnight. Um, it's not simply a matter of even handing everybody a big check. That wouldn't actually solve the problem because most people are in poverty because there's cycles of uh, not appreciating education well or 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 like lacking certain character qualities to hold a good job or maybe like not knowing how to budget well or having some substance abuse problems. Now, I'm not trying to say everybody who's poor has these problems, but like these are contributing factors. You could hand everybody in America a hundred grand and 10 years from now, I can guarantee there will still be people in poverty because it's not simply a matter of cash. There's a lot more to it. But one thought was, whoa, what if we could, what if we could move like half of America's urban poor to become rural poor? And, and, and in that process, maybe even in such a way that it could potentially help them move away from being poor. But wow, if we could just get them out of a rural context. And I don't have a solution fully developed, but I have begun thinking, wow, what if you could set up some sort of program? Like I know, for example, in New York State, uh, I, I don't love this program per se, but I like the general idea and what it's trying to accomplish. There is a, a, a system where most schools in New York, both public and private, I believe, have some sort of setup where they have a program that helps underprivileged stu- potential students get into the school, but then also provides them with some ongoing support, some extra tutoring, some uh, mentoring and accountability. And, and so these programs are designed to help people who come from a background where they might not have had, uh, you know, post-secondary education modeled for them and and they might might not have a vision for it or a good understanding. And so it's a program that kind of, uh, to say handholding is probably too involved, but it's, it's, it's a program designed to help these students get into and then succeed in a post-secondary context. What if you could design something where every county in New York state had a local urban to rural poverty transfer office. Obviously you'd have to call it something way more interesting than that. That is so technical and depressing sounding. Um, but if, if you had these offices and, and there are some members in these offices in an urban context, it's all about recruiting people and then connecting them with rural offices. And the rural offices are all about grabbing somebody's resume. So say somebody's in New York and they're working two part-time jobs, one at a laundromat and one as a home health aide. It's like a single mom, couple of kids. She's working two part-time jobs, living in, in uh, you know, like a assisted living housing, but just urban poor and, and really doesn't have tons of hope for how to move forward in the future. And all of a sudden she could go to this office in New York, be like, hey, here's my situation. Here's what I've done. They can kind of draft up a quick resume, send it out to the rural offices, and they could find somebody who's like, Hey, we can connect her with a laundromat job. We or we can connect her with a home health care job. And then part of the program would, once that job connection is made, because again, the person in urban poverty is not able to job hunt themselves. So this program would actually do the job hunting for them. And then the person would there, there'd be a moving grant, maybe a, a year's worth of rental assistance and like some sort of, yeah, there's going to, there's costs involved in this kind of move. And you want to be able to set people up to do well and succeed. 
But ultimately, the the short-term goal isn't just to hand them a bunch of cash. It's it's primarily to move them away from this urban poverty context. I don't know. It, it's interesting. I don't think everybody would be interested in it. But even if there were, I don't know, a few tens of thousands a year in New York State, well, that could really transform many people's lives. So it's something to think about. It wouldn't be connected to race directly. Maybe the majority of people who utilize it would be black and Latino. That's probably true, but it wouldn't only be for somebody based on race because it's not interested in perpetuating the problem of racism, but it is interested in taking a step towards helping people who are in a tough situation. And like, hey, how, how can we do something? And so that's just like something to brainstorm and think about. It's, it's just a, a, a fun thought. Uh, and by fun, I mean, it's, it's fun to think about like, how do we actually take steps? Cause sometimes it feels so blah, hopeless. And, and I, I came across this proposal by Charles Blow to reverse the great migration. And I thought that's kind of, in some ways I've been thinking about something like this. It's just not racially essentialism. It's not racial essentialism. It's just how do we help people who are in tight situations? And and one step is not even to say like, how can we make them a college graduate? It's how do we just move somebody from urban poverty to rural poverty? And then in a context where they're set up to succeed and hopefully move beyond poverty over time. But anywho, some thoughts. Uh, and, and that comes from a desire to love our neighbors, to serve the people around us. And we as believers can certainly participate and bring some wisdom and great creativity to those kinds of subjects. So, hey, um, I will do another podcast soon because I've got a couple of things to chat about. I am interested in talking eschatology a little bit. And then also I got a very specific and unique question recently about responses to angels. So I'll be coming at you with that too. Peace.